Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Two years ago, I had the honor to serve as a leader on the Trump presidential transition team. From August 2016 to the inaugural in January 17, over 300 policy experts developed plans to transition all of the government agencies to the Trump administration. It was an extraordinarily talented group of people. Two men in particular stood out. Our leader, Ron Nickel, had run the Boston Consulting Group's America practice, and our most senior and respected advisor was Ed Meese, who had served as Ronald Reagan's attorney general and as counselor to the president, the top staff job in the White House. Transition was an intense and sometimes chaotic experience. Ron and I had come from the private sector and in the process learned a lot about how government works or doesn't. Ed provided much needed context and wisdom to guide us through our long days together. We talked about leadership styles, Trump versus Reagan, crisis management, and the differences between business leadership and political leadership. Ed told some terrific stories about Ronald Reagan. I often wished I'd had a tape recorder to capture everyone's conversations and thoughts. So today, we're going one better. Ron and Ed are joining me here on the show to talk about the things we talked about during transition and to continue our conversations. Uh, Edwin Meese III, after his service with Ronald Reagan, joined the Heritage Foundation where he founded its Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. For years, he has been the nation's most prominent conservative voice, leader, thinker, and elder statesman. Among his many books are The Heritage Guide to the Constitution and Leadership, Ethics, and Policing. He graduated from Yale University, and his law degree is from Berkeley. Welcome, Ed. Thank you. Good to be with you. Uh, it's great to have you here. Ron Nickel, named one of the top 25 consultants in the world by Consulting Magazine, led Boston Consulting Group's America's Organization and Technology Practices. At BCG, he developed strategies for dozens of Fortune 100 companies. Ron also served as the chairman of the Board of Advisors for Duke University's Fuqua School of Business. Following his graduation from the Naval Academy with a BS in physics, where he ranked seventh in his class of 850, Ron served as a nuclear naval submarine officer in, uh, and served with distinction in the Navy. Welcome, Ron. Great to be here, Bill. It's great to have you here. It's great to reunite the team after a couple of years. Uh, Ed, you had a little prior experience with transition. Uh, Ron and I were new to it. You, you, you had some experience with Ronald Reagan. Yes, I was uh, fortunate to, to uh, be the, asked by uh, then-President-elect Reagan in the 1980 to uh, head the transition that year, a transition that started literally uh, the day after the election on the uh, 4th of November, 1980. So we got started in, Ron, you, you started us sure. out. You were the first guy on the scene. Early August, right after the GOP convention. And is there, I understand that we have a law that creates the transition process. Well, uh, at the time that uh, I was a director, there was essentially no law that no, no law at least provided any funding or any authority to do anything until after the election. And of course, for us, we felt that was a good idea 
so that everybody who was supporting Ronald Reagan could devote all of their attention to winning the election. Mm -hmm. And we forbade anyone even thinking about what might happen afterwards so that we didn't have rivalries, people grasping for the best jobs that might happen. We thought it was very important to win the election first and then worry about what you did afterwards. Well, I think our candidate, Mr. Trump, agreed with Mr. Reagan and that he, he was not, he was a little ambivalent about a transition team starting up before the, uh, before the election. Ron, what you had some insights well, it, there. As, it, the, there was a law change in 2010 that provided resources right after the convention up until the election. So we, we stood up the team prior to that. But to your point, Bill, I can remember some of our team members going to campaign events and going up to, to uh, President Trump and saying, hey, I'm working on your transition. And his answer was, why are you doing that? Start working on the campaign, because unless we win, it doesn't matter. Well, nevertheless, we toiled in obscurity very productively. Give us the scope of what the transition was. I mean, sure. it was a very interesting process, and those of us that didn't know as much about government learned a lot. Yeah, we, uh, so we started, as I mentioned, right after the convention. Uh, we had a number of teams. We had a team uh, to do appointments, so that was led by Bill Haggerty. So we had a team that was looking at who were potential candidates for the positions of government, because one of the uh, obviously uh, goals is to get those people in place. But secondly, there was a team that looked at the future White House operations. There was a team for policy. And the team that uh, I, I worked on uh, was agency review, but we changed the name to agency action. But mm -hmm. we're responsible really for looking at the transition of each of the agencies of government. So we had over 300 people, and we were broken up into groups. Ed headed one group, I headed one, and uh, Ed Fulner was Ed another. Fulner. Fulner. And yep. uh, I think Mike Rogers for a while uh, also yep. headed one. That's correct. And we had teams for each agency, and we wrote plans based on how we saw things needed to be changed. My favorite plan was the one for the SBA, which I <laughs> oversaw, and I didn't think the SBA needed to exist. Yes. And so I had a one-page plan for that drafted up that basically says let's shut it down shut it down and the next day we were we, i think we were i don't know how serious we were but the next day uh mr trump appointed uh um the head of the worldwide federation of wrestling mcmahon linda mcmahon is head of it and i thought well, we can get rid of our one pager she's not going to want to shut yes, this down yes. <laughs> you know and coming back to your point bill the, the fact is we had we started with no, no one, and so we had to spin up a team of about 250 to 300 people yeah. in a fairly short period of time. Which, by the way, one of the things that was really pleasing about that process is you had a lot of patriots, people that wanted right. to be participating in this. It was, not, it was an unpaid job. There were some, a very few number of positions that were compensated, but not at very high levels. So most of the folks on these teams were volunteers. And the fact uh, was that there are a lot of people around that have had prior experience in one administration or another over the years that were willing to come out of retirement or yeah. to uh, give a part-time from their regular jobs in order to participate in the transition. What? And so we really had uh, some expertise that wasn't expected, really, yeah. uh, that based upon what people had done before. And no, very few people knew about their, their background and experience, which was very valuable to put that, that knowledge into uh, the planning the, for the new administration. As you mentioned, so I, um, as, as Bill said, we come from the private sector, so I had no experience with Washington. So the thing that, uh, an interesting analogy came to my mind. So you have a large tree with full of birds, and they're all on their perches. And so what happens in an election, 
is potentially the tree gets sh shaken and every all the birds fly away, and you got all these other birds circling around looking for a place to roost. So you have a lot of people that have an interest because they want to be in the, in the next administration. So there was highly motivated people on this team. Well, one of the things that was interesting is our building. We had a government building that we were provided, and our transition was on team was on the seventh floor. Is yeah, right? seventh and half of eighth, I think. And the Hillary transition team was on eleven. Mm -hmm. And of course, in August of 2016, everybody knew that she was going to win. Of course. And we'd ride up and down the <laughs> elevator with the Hillary people. <laughs> and they'd look at us like, Why are you wasting your time? You, you people are hopeless. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then we had our moments because, you know, remember, we had some very dedicated people, very brilliant people right at the outset. And then nobody was really sure we'd win. And then we won. That's right. And uh, then all of a sudden, we had a lot of new dedicated people. <laughs> we, right. had a lot of, we had a lot of help. <laughs> and actually, that was one of the problems, going back to what we discussed earlier about the differences yeah, of the two campaigns. Yeah, that's what I was going with this yeah. one, yeah. Because uh, here we had the people who had been working on the transition, and now you had a lot of other people who had been exclusively on the campaign, and they also were interested in what happened in the future. Yeah. And, and that's a really good point. In fact, um, what, what I would say is what happened after the election... <laughs> was, in business parlance, a takeover, not a merger. And the, it was difficult to mitigate that because, as we talked earlier, the folks on the campaign had almost no idea of what we did and assumed we did nothing. Uh, and so we had this takeover occur after the election. I think it could have been mitigated, because I, I think your point is a really good one, is in the future, if you had someone in the position of running the transition who was a highly trusted advisor of the candidate, who is probably not looking for a position in government, but who would be trusted once the transition is evolving post-election, uh, because we didn't have that, and that made it more difficult. Well, uh, Romney was much more engaged in his transition than was, uh, than was uh, Trump. I mean, yes, I think so. he had a full-blown corporate thing, very involved in the campaign, and I'm not sure... Of course, then he went he didn't win, and though. lost the election. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. So <laughs> So, you know, this is a resource allocation question. Right. Well, in hindsight, do you think we would have been better if we'd started November 7th? Well, it's hard to say. Uh, I think a lot of it was, it uh, depends on, on the people. But I think, for one thing, uh, there, it would have been better to have someone who had been in the campaign uh, from the start, in a sense, who could pull together the two groups. And we didn't have that. We really had, as, as Ron points out, two different groups trying to find their way of joining together without, and actually the person who had headed the campaign during the, uh, excuse me, the pr person who headed the, the transition prior to the election was no longer the head of the transition after right. that time. So it was not just meshing two different groups of people, it was also meshing the, a different philosophy of the transition from one person to another. So that made it more difficult, plus the fact that we were divided in location. A lot of people who had been in the campaign and, and now were officials in the transition were in New York, and a lot of us who were kind of the workers were in Washington, D.C., and it was kind of hard to get those two groups together sometimes. So the, the lesson is that we really, it needs to be integrated. You need to have a candidate that believes in the work before the election, but really most of the work, 80%, 90% of it's got to happen afterwards because there's a certain unreality to doing all this planning before the election. That's right. Even if you think you're a shoe-in like Hillary's team did. 
Yeah, well, uh, one of the things that is important, of course, is what the president promised in the campaign has to be transitioned into the plans for the future yeah. if he's going to be maintain integrity and credibility. And, of course, if you weren't out there in the campaign knowing what was being promised and instead were developing a separate set of plans, it's, it, that makes for the cleavage, really, between the two groups. But that's the thing that I find remarkable is that Trump really, now that he's been in the job for a couple of years, he really... He really acted on most of those things that we build in the plans. Now, I don't think, I don't think he read all how many plans no. we have. But, but the basic promises we worked to get engaged in the in the plans that were developed, and then now they're being acted on. But one of the things we did at the the pre-election process was track what was said in the campaign, yeah. and capture those. One of the things we learned from previous transition uh, efforts. There'd been a tremendous amount of paperwork generated, a lot of position papers and so on. What we tried to do is focus it down yeah. on something we called the two-pager and 20-pager. And in that two-pager, we captured all of those campaign promises. I think I learned as much about the consulting business as I did politics. <laughs> the BCG process is amazing. It worked. I mean, talk about, you know, one of the things we talked about was the difference in leadership styles between the political leader and the, and the business yeah. leader. And... We all talked about that. Very I mean, what did you want to? Well, I can remember uh, vividly a session that was being held to educate the team on how a chief of staff should operate in the White House. And it was very theoretical. It was, it was an academic discussion. And I thought about this and said, you know, most of the CEOs I know, and certainly what I see of, of uh, Mr. Trump would be, I don't think he's going to operate that way. And of course he didn't. It was a very different style that came in. It was very much more a corporate style. Yeah, and I think too, uh, Ron, both you and I really got our leadership training initially in the military, you in the Navy and me in the Army. And I think that had a lot to do with our view of things because in effect, uh, in many cases, corporate uh, leadership style is more like, uh, uh, more like the military, I think, than that. and the political style. Uh, the, the big difference is that uh, corporations run pretty much the same uh, in terms of their internal structure and so on. Occasionally there are major changes, but, but for the most part there's, a, there's kind of a, a climate, there's kind of a, a culture, if you will, uh, that continues from one executive, chief executive to another. Uh, in campaigns, particularly when you have a different style in the person of the president himself or herself, mm -hmm. uh, you, have some, you have some potential for real change, and I think uh, President Trump illustrates this as much as anyone has. What was what was Ronald Reagan's leadership style? Actually, Ronald Reagan learned his leadership in the Army, too. Uh, <laughs> he, he goes all the way back to the Army Reserve in, in the 1930s uh, when he joined the Army Reserve because he wanted to ride horses. Yeah. And then uh, he, was, uh, uh, he took uh, courses. Those days they had correspondence courses for people who were enlisted men to uh, advance in rank, and he took courses to become a second lieutenant. So when World War II came along, he was a second lieutenant in, in the Army Reserve, and he was called to active duty in 1942 and spent the war ultimately uh, leaving as a captain uh, in the Army. So he, that was his initial leadership's uh, schooling, if you will. But so, of course, he so, had, had a lot of private sector uh, experience as well because right. he was president of the Screen Actors Guild. Right. And then he'd had the political leadership as governor of California. So he had had a, a great deal of... As a matter of fact, his leadership went all the way back to being president of his class, I believe, in, in uh, high school and president of the student body when he was in college. Interesting. So 
Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, I, I, you pointed out one of the things that was really difficult to deal with is there was no sense of chain of command, so to speak, in the transition. Um, so the accountability and responsibilities that we're used to really didn't work that way. It's a different, it's a very different structure that works in politics. Well, I think we concluded that Trump was not a typical corporate business executive. I mean, he really run a family real estate development shop. Right. And his, his business was basically taking properties and serially developing them. But he didn't need a big organization to do that. And, he'd, he'd, you know, he created an organization to run a hotel, perhaps, but that wouldn't be something he would be involved with. So he didn't have any real... No, low overhead, very <clears throat> sparse resources to get things done. And he's still running at that, running the government that way. And Ed, you, you know, we, you, you two men, mentioned the office of the personnel shop we had to get people appointed. We're still underachieving in that category. Yeah, the uh, presidential personnel operation uh, has uh, had difficulties, and those were compounded then by having a very hostile opposition party in the Congress. Right. So the, as a result of that. We're now uh, two-thirds of the way into the first term, and uh, we still have, I would say, almost every department still is lacking some of the top officials uh, being announced and, and uh, nominated and then confirmed. And this has a, a, a deleterious effect, really, on maintaining accountability, as Ron mentioned, and the other kinds of things you need when you, you're talking about a, an enterprise that has... Uh, well in excess of two million employees when you put the civilian and the military people together. And uh, this is a big job for anyone, uh, but particularly you need a, a very highly uh, organized and a very highly uh, communicating and highly accountable structure for your organization to be successful. How did, how did, uh, how did Ronald Reagan do that? Well, he did it, uh, first of all, by recognizing the importance of two-way communication. Yeah. And uh, he had, for example, he worked very closely with his cabinet. He had developed a cabinet system when he was governor of California where he would meet with his cabinet as often sometimes as three times a week. Now, that was a small cabinet then because a state, you can do it with about six people. Mm -hmm. uh, and what he did was he had uh, four people who had all of the different departments. I think there were like 40 different departments uh, divided among the four of them. He called them cabinet secretaries. Then he had his chief of staff, uh, and then he had the director of finance, and that was his cabinet. And so sometimes, for example, when the legislature finished their uh, half-year session and left all the bills to be decided whether he vetoed them or signed them, uh, he, we would often be going from literally from 8 o'clock in the morning till 10 o'clock at night with him sitting there uh, getting the advice of his cabinet and making decisions. Hmm. He carried that over into the federal government, Obviously, the scope of the federal government is much greater than a state, and so he, he had what he called cabinet councils, which were groups of the cabinet, less than the whole, and he would meet with them so that he would be in touch with his cabinet secretaries. Uh, and those were real regularly. exchange of ideas meetings. Very was, much ex was... exchange of ideas, and, and uh, he, he had a system where, where the cabinet council, for example, would get together without him there for uh, a preliminary meeting in order to do three things. Number one, to identify what the issues were. Uh, secondly, to get the options. And thirdly, to be agreed on the facts. So he didn't have people arguing about facts in front of him. Uh, there would be, so that he had a, an organized system. He was highly organized himself, but he had a very organized system to get the maximum information so that he could make a decision. Well, I wish we had him running some of the cable networks so we could agree on the facts. <laughs> I remember an early conversation when, uh, after the election, 
and we had gotten to the point where some of the cabinet secretaries had been appointed. And Ed Fulner was having dinner, uh, sitting at um, Mr. Trump's side, and uh, he was frustrated because he'd been trying to get messages across to, to get coordination across the cabinets. And, and uh, Ed Fulner brought up this point of the cabinets meeting, which was an interesting idea in government, which strikes me from a, a private sector standpoint that the leadership team of any company would be meeting regularly. Uh, but that doesn't happen necessarily without uh, prompting. So it, they, they've now uh, they were doing uh, that. And Ron, you, you know, I think I booted the description in the opening, but you ran the organization practice at BGG. Uh, you ran a lot of things. But what was the organization practice in advising a big company uh, you know, talk about talent sure. management, human resources, organization design. How do, how do you, yeah, coming from about, that world, where are you? Well, think about the strategy of organizations, how you design an organization, how the operating model of an organization works. Yeah. And again, a, a, another interesting observation about culture, culture's part of organization, as you know. When, uh, when I got involved in Washington in the transition, it was a different world that I'd been in. And uh, just a couple of interesting observations. So, uh, McClellan's theory of needs is a way to think about people in organizations. They have really three drivers, if you will, for needs. One is motivation, uh, I'm sorry, affiliation. Affiliation is basically someone's, uh, Joe's coming down the hall, everyone loves Joe, but Joe won't make any decisions because he doesn't want to make anyone mad, doesn't want to upset anyone. The second dimension is power. The power person is someone who you give, they want resources, they want to control the money and the people. Uh, so if you give someone, for example, say I'll give you uh, $500 million, 1,000 people, but the project has a 99% chance of failure, they'll put their hand up right away because they don't really care whether it works or not. They just want to control. And the last dimension is achievement. And the achievement dimension is take that hill. The thing that I would observe is the mix between those three that I saw in the culture of Washington was much more toward power and affiliation <clears throat> and much less so toward achievement. And Bill, you remember that you and I were reviewing resumes as we were bringing people on the team. And I was always struck by how impressive the resumes were because we had people that had been former assistant secretaries, deputy secretaries, tremendous number of titles. Sure. And I would ask the question, well, what did you do when you were in that job? And their, the, the summary answer was, that doesn't matter here. It just matters what title you have. Yeah, that, that's a big difference. To too many people, government is a process rather than a results-oriented business. And uh, I think the latter, of course, and that, that, quite frankly, I think that is one thing that President Trump uh, has brought to yeah. the uh, federal government, and that is a sense of the importance of accomplishments. The fact that he has, in fact, carried out the things that he said he would do during the campaign and makes a point of saying that promises made, promises kept, uh, that's a very important part of it, as it was for Ronald Reagan. He uh, had made very definite commitments, of course. Uh, in his case, they were pretty large. One was to revitalize the economy. The second was to rebuild our national security uh, apparatus. Uh, and the third was to renew the spirit of the American people. Those are pretty large goals, but he was able to accomplish the, the, them, literally uh, making, making substantial progress even by the end of the first term and certainly by the end of the second term. Well, this is, this is a very good point, because what's frustrating, I think, a lot of the, 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 the Democrat Party frustrating the news media is the fact that the president is achievement-oriented, and he is checking these boxes and making good on the promises he made in the campaign. Yeah, and, and you know, the one big difference between the private sector and government 
the government, in a sense, is more like the military experience in this sense. Uh, there's another force combating you in the course of this. And unfortunately, that combat has gotten more accentuated in this administration than I think we've seen it in a long time. So it makes the leadership even more difficult. Very good point. Key to the kingdom, is there any way to unwind this thing or to change it? To change Those of us that remain pessimistic about the promise of progress in Washington, you're not giving me any reason for optimism. Well, I think the one thing that many of us feel about it is that we have to hold the government within the bounds for which government is designed. Yeah. And that's to do the kinds of things that the private sector can't do and to limit itself to the things that government is really formed to do, which is the protection of people, the, the helping of those who cannot help themselves to defend the nation, those kinds of things that are set forth in the Constitution, yeah. and not to get into all kinds of other things where government is notoriously not very good at it. Well, Ron, i take a shot at your question, Bill. Yeah, well, BCG's got it. You, you do some work in the government agencies. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Well, I would, I would answer your question by saying I think that the movement of the parties, and particularly the left, is moving so far to the left it's going to leave potentially the, the public behind. At some point, there'll be a reaction. Because one of the things I observed, again, having been in Washington, it's, it's an ecosystem. And the ecosystem of Washington ex exists to perpetuate itself. Mm -hmm. And so those outside of Washington will be the counterforce at some point that'll bring this back closer to the center. Do you think that we need, Ed, uh, the, the, the system, the civil service system, was designed to protect us from corruption in government and people and cronyism, and yet the civil service system has left us with the permanent governing class. And you know, even if we get all the appointees that we want into these agencies, it's still only two percent of the people there. Right. I mean, is there is there a civil service? And I'm interested in you as an organization designer. Is there is there a civil service reform that could get us a long way towards this? Well, I don't think there's any reform that will substitute for good leadership. Uh, as when I headed the Department of Justice, now we had at that time 78,000 people, but I was very fortunate in having a, a great group of people around me who were good leaders. And uh, through uh, two-way communication, through uh, teamwork building, uh, through letting people know what you expected, through uh, uh, taking accountability and pushing it all the way down through the organization by, uh, uh, there's a saying in the military, uh, what what uh, gets inspected is what gets done. And uh, part of it, in my case, was getting out there and getting away from Washington, visiting the field offices. We had at that time 57 field offices of the FBI, a comparable organization for the Drug Enforcement Administration, uh, many uh, dozen, a couple of dozens of federal prisons. Uh, you have to get out and have to see what's going on yourself, but also letting people know that you're looking at what's going on. And I think that that what we really need is good organization and good communications to let people know what is expected, but also to get their ideas. And uh, Ron, you talked about affiliation and uh, making people feel part of the organization themselves so that they have uh, a stake in results. Uh, that's a very important part of it. So that those kinds of things that you normally do in a profit-making business have to be carried over into the federal government and you, so you don't have people that are just there putting in time until they get their 20 years and retire. Unfortunately, though, I, I think that there is limited competition inside the, the human resources part of the government, meaning in most private sector businesses, you have an up or out or essentially you deliver or don't. 
uh, and you leave, people leave the organization. That happens less so. And I think that one of the things that frustrates a lot of government employees is folks that actively disengage in the activities they're involved with are actually, there's no remedy in the Civil Service Act for have people leave. It's very difficult to have people leave an organization in the government. I think, Eddie, I think you're right about the leadership piece because we, thought, we talk about the swamp and the deep state, but you go into these agencies, and I had the experience running the Treasury landing right. team. You go into the agencies, and I've been known to say things like, well, we ought to shut down the IRS and things like that. And I just realized how blindingly stupid that is when you actually go in the IRS sure. and meet the people yeah. and see who they are. And they're decent people. They're good they're people. Good. They're not, there's not, but they're, they're, they're operating in a system that's, that's terrible because they're so demonized that they can't get resources from Congress to build a proper computer system, information system. They're not getting enough staffing to do things, and they're laboring under incredible uh, handicaps. And, you know, I sort of went, by meeting the actual yeah. people, went from a, an enemy of the IRS to a champion of we got to do something to make, because it would make everybody better if we properly resource them. Well, the what you point out, Bill, the complexity of our government is overwhelming. Yeah. And so uh, Tom Leppert was a team lead that did the uh, Social Security Administration sure. near Baltimore. And those folks were starved for uh, resources to make things happen, to make things work. And so everybody's trying on a daily basis to do everything they can, but frankly, they don't have all the resources they need. Well, and this is uh, compounded by the fact that for several years now, we haven't had budgets until sometimes never. <laughs> In other words, you're operating on last year's budget because the Congress has not gotten around to this year's budget yet. Uh, and so you can go uh, two-thirds of the way through the fiscal year before you even get a budget. And as I say, in some, some years, you've never gotten a budget. You've uh, operated on what they call a continuing resolution. So therefore, any idea of planning is almost out the window. And I would say that, that of all the things that uh, is a, a detriment in terms of running a, a sound organization is the way in which the whole resource planning and the way in which appropriations are made uh, is out of whack. You know, uh, 1974, I think it was, Congress decided they were going to change the appropriation system. And so they, they uh, delayed the start of the fiscal year from the 1st of July to the 1st of October so they could get a new system in place. And that was going to have a, a, a new budget system and a way in which you would have the, the uh, budget enacted well before the start of the fiscal year. And it worked for a few years, I, I think, uh, but it certainly doesn't work today, and that's one of the great problems. So that when you have all of these detriments, some uh, lack of accountability on individuals, uh, well, a lack of uh, knowledge of what the budget's going to be or when it's going to start, uh, all of these things are things that could be easily corrected by the top leadership, quite frankly, particularly in the Congress, doing their job properly. Very good point, Ed. I mean, in fact, one of the things we found in the transition is we developed hypotheses, looked at the resources in the various agencies. Reallocating some of those resources would be the optimal thing to do. Yet it's extremely difficult to do because you have to take it out of someone's budget and put it in someone else's budget. And there's parochial views on how they want to do, what they want to do with that money. Uh, I want to go a couple directions with this, but let me come back to you, Ron. Your organization practice, you developed something called the delayering approach. Yes. which is the BCG's biggest revenue producer now. I'm not sure at this point because I've been away from it for a while. But uh, it is a process. Uh, so it's, it's an interesting process. And I actually did, uh, did work with the, the Pentagon with the uh, 
Because it gets at this issue of these things being complex yes, organizations. Yes. There's too many continue. And you look at the structure of an organization, and what I would like to see is the fewest number of levels in the organization, or fewer number of layers, and you'd like to see spans of control of 7 to 10, something like that. What you find is, and you look at government organizations, you see a tremendous number of deputies. So you'll see two people in a box. Uh, and you find low spans of controls and a lot of layers of, of organization. And those are certainly not optimal ways to run organizations. You're right, Ron. Let me tell you, when we were, uh, when President Reagan was in office, we had in the Department of Defense two undersecretaries. And then we had a number of assistant secretaries. Today, they have either six or seven undersecretaries in the Department of Defense. Actually, less of a mission in many ways now than we had during the Cold War. Uh, and yet, at the same time, more people. And those people that were assistant secretaries, for example, on a particular function, have now been raised up to undersecretaries. And they have then many more deputies. So that, in essence, what we've done over a period of, what, 20 years, we have made the, the, the complex organization more complex and more expensive and less accountable than we had when uh, President Reagan was president uh, uh, five presidents ago. You, you know, it's a very good point, Ed, because there's no force. There's forces to, to elevate positions, but there are rarely forces to take out positions. And so it's, it takes an overt act to actually delayer an organization. It's really tough to do. So the, do you remember the SEC organization chart? I do. Do you remember all those boxes? A lot of boxes. We, we had an organization chart. We had, all, we had dozens of boxes, somebody in each box. And you've got the commissioner there, and then you've got the four other, uh, you've got the chairman, then the chairman. four other commissioners. And then you notice something very interesting. None of the boxes really report to each other. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah, it's very so there, they, they were, everybody had their own piece of the pie, and nobody was really running the thing. And you had, a, you had the SEC commissioner who has all the power and all the staffing, but that person can't run that. Are you, does that, that <laughs> I committed. think that explains, you, you, have, you take a, a, what is at, its, at the start, a complex situation, and you make it more complex by not having accountability, uh, really, when you have five people uh, each ha having a separate uh, part of the pie, so to speak, uh, and none of them accountable for the re end result, that makes it very difficult. So I, I always like to find lines of action, I guess, in your three pieces of the world or types of people, affiliation, power, achievement. I guess you and I figured out we like to achieve stuff, yeah. and so does Ed. So he doesn't qualify as a regular government. Uh, no, exactly. He's an anomaly. I mean, so you're, you're, one, you're one of the achievement people. Well, actually, you know, most of my life, has, uh, at least half of my life, more than that, it really has not been in government. Yeah. Uh, it's been in other enterprises, uh, including uh, in, in the nonprofit world. Well, you founded the Center for Legal uh, Studies at Heritage. Well, that's right. And I, for example, Heritage is a great example yeah. of accountability where uh, the, the various division heads there, the policy divisions, uh, legal, whether it's legal or national security or economics, whatever it is, uh, our vice presidents are, have to set goals for the year for their organizations. And then their compensation is based upon their achievement of those goals. And that's a powerful incentive for people to uh, recognize and to keep their eye on what the, what the ultimate objective really is. You know, this is a very good point. In terms of compensation, when I look at how much our government service are, are paid, people in government, it's actually quite a bit below what the private sector pays. Uh, and 
It, are, you, are you sure that's still true? Well, well I'll I tell you where it's true. It's true at the top. In technology, what, what, it's true. Well, at the top, it's not. At the top, the pay is very low right, by comparison right. with the private sector. Below that, uh, support personnel and so on, it's much higher. That's a good distinction. When yeah. I moved, that's, yeah. that's yeah. Ryan. You're right. When yeah. I moved from the federal government uh, to the, the Heritage Foundation, uh, my assistant, for example, uh, had to take a pay cut, <laughs> and and that was a very uh, an illustration from really, the federal government from to what, heritage from what yeah, well, she's getting yes and the reason this is important is because you're right if you look at the benchmark data what you'll see is that the average compensation of a government employee exceeds the private sector equivalent uh no i think it's by 50 percent when you include all the benefits it's even absolutely higher. but what, yeah. what ed pointed out if you look at the leadership you look at the top you're not going to be able to attract necessarily the same people you can attract in the private sector because the compensation is too low so you end back to Ed's point earlier of how important leadership is. I don't know that we recognize that uh, because we should be actually competitive in bringing in talent at the top of a government. Well, and I think it, it varies, as, as Bill points out. It does vary. Uh, for example, I just saw a survey the other day that they, they uncovered. There's something like uh, uh, almost a, a couple of hundred of people in the Department of Education, for example, which shouldn't even be a federal department. <laughs> There's nothing in the Constitution that authorizes yeah. that. And yet you have them uh, making close to, to uh, $200,000 $200, a year for doing essentially nothing other than paperwork, uh, one of those departments that we shouldn't even have, uh, and which probably does more to compound the problems of, of education yeah. rather than actually uh, make a, a, an actual contribution to more kids learning more, better things. So how do we, I'd love to see if we can't, in this show, develop lines of action or reasons for optimism or things people ought to say, gee, if there ought to be a law to do this or a leader ought to do that. What, what, are you, what do you think would, would be fundamental change that if we could bring it about would, uh, would solve some of these problems? Well, we might look at history. And one of the more fundamental changes in the government was the, were the two Hoover commissions that uh, were appointed after World War II and did a great job of consolidating functions, of bringing groups together, uh, making lines of authority more clear. And uh, I, I think we possibly need something along those lines. To, and particularly, we need to have a set of principles that the federal government should not be doing things that could be better done by the private sector and, and uh, not have the mission creep that almost every department has experienced over the course of the last 25 to 30 years. And the Hoover Commission, this was Herbert Hoover from, uh, who was our engineer president. He right, came from the right, private sector, right, right. ran utilities, and so he brought all that into the government. Right, and, and brought a talented group of people together who had no stake in what happened except good government. And as a result, they were able to do the things that put, and then you had President uh, Eisenhower, who really came along after that and did a lot to streamline things based upon his experience in the military. Once again, the yeah. great general. Yeah. And, and to, to its point, what I've found in organizations is, or it's all, organization redesign and restructuring is almost like <clears throat> trying to do an operation on yourself. You can logically say, I need an appendectomy, but taking the knife and doing that to yourself is a very difficult exercise. And so I think the point you made about having outside, an, an unbiased outside party, uh, such as leaders, well-intentioned, well and respected leaders that would take a look at the structure of our government, there are significant changes that could be made. Actually, uh, I had some experience with that in this sense. Uh, President Nixon appointed the Ash Commission 
to kind of pa follow the pattern of the Hoover commissions in the uh, in the early 70s and uh, they came up with some interesting ideas on governmental organization now n almost none of them were adopted by Congress <laughs> but in California under then governor Reagan yeah. we used a lot of the ideas of the Ash Commission uh, reformulated those and adapted yeah. to a government to a state government and it was very helpful in the way we organized the executive branch of California. Another example, Bill, to your question around yeah. ac actions that can be done. Um, I was involved with one organization, the Pentagon, where uh, if you looked at the attrition rate of the people on the, on the various, in the various organizations, it's 7 to 8%, because now the baby boomers are reaching a point where there's a lot of retirements. And historically what had been done is just when someone retired, you replaced that position. So you just hire someone into the box that the person left. And what we work with the organization to do is to say, Rather than do that, when the box is emptied, rearrange the boxes. It's almost like the puzzle you had when you were a kid where yeah. you have little blocks and we had to make a face out of it. So it's a little more complex, but actually they did a great job. And over a couple of years, they reduced 20% of their cost by taking that approach. So there are things that we can do in these organizations to make them much more effective and efficient. In, so, the, first, uh, in the first couple of years of the Reagan administration, uh, we were able to eliminate 75,000 positions in the federal government just by something along the lines you've indicated. Yeah. Well, our current president doesn't seem to have much appetite for doing this kind of thing. My thought is maybe we ought to see if we couldn't hire a chief operating officer for him because uh, we need we need more. I mean, he's I think he's doing a good job living up to his performance, uh, his, his campaign promises, but 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 there's so many missed opportunities right now. Yeah, but I would I'm not sure that I would lay it at the president's feet. I think the secretaries of the departments ought to be taking this on. Now, may, they probably need to no, have... No, you're right. You're right. Right? Because, yeah, no, you're right. And the thing it does, it actually creates a more effective, efficient But they need a mandate to do that. That's well, that's the point. That's they need point. to be said... They need, somebody right. needs to say, you got to do, do this. this. But there's one other component, and that is the Congress. Because right yeah. now, and that's one of the things we found in the Reagan administration, he had a lot of ideas, including getting rid of the Department of Education and things like that. And he was stymied literally by Congress, because what happens is you have the, this iron triangle, and what, the tri iron triangle is made, iron triangle is made up of three components. One is the organization itself in the federal government. Number two is the special interest group on the outside, and the third is their rabbis, if you will, or their sponsors in Congress. And the latter two can overcome the the part of the executive branch that's trying to make the change. That, that's the ecosystem I was talking about earlier that I've seen operate in Washington, and it's quite strong. It's, it's not, I mean, people talk about the swamp, but it's, it's more than that. It's actually a set of forces that are in place that make it very difficult to make change here. Yeah, and also, unfortunately, the uh, impetus, the, uh, the uh, <coughs> objective of too many members of Congress is to add something that they're doing supposedly for their for their constituents, yes. when actually what they're doing really is adding to this tremendous bill that now is going into the trillions uh, rather than the billions that we had to contend with back in, in the 1980s. Another example of that is, is regulation. As you know, in the transition, we identified a lot of places that regulations could be reduced. And one of the things I'm really pleased to see is this administration's done a great job of that. But you don't find people taking things away, to your point, Ed. It's more about adding, putting something on top of what's already there. Well, unfortunately, we've got to wrap up. One of the great personal pleasures for me in volunteering to work for the transition was meeting 
and get it. Well, I knew Ed, but getting to meet and work with both of you in this, and you know, I think if we can continue to get people like the two of you willing to commit your time to make things happen, I think we're likely to have good outcomes. So anyway, Ron Nickel, thanks for joining me. Ed Meese, thank you again. Um, any last words, guys? No, it's been a pleasure. Good to be with you. you. Enjoyed the enjoyed the discussion. Okay, well, thanks for joining, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Want more? Be sure to subscribe at thebillwaltonshow.com or on iTunes. Amazon is hiring near you. Earn a competitive wage and start as soon as seven days. No resume or experience required. Health and safety are a top priority with all of our roles and sites, and Amazon is taking precautions in our buildings to keep people healthy. Go to Amazon.com slash apply. That's Amazon.com slash apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer.